Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, we are grateful to be able to gather as worshipers. And I pray that we truly understand the greatness of that privilege. What it is to have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light. To be translated from the realm of darkness and dissolution, death, destruction, into the kingdom of your Son, the kingdom of light and life. And Father, there are many times when we, we struggle to believe and to own that reality. But we do thank you that you sustain us, that you nourish us, that you continue by your good spirit to hold us fast, to grow us, to labor towards the accomplishing of that great, all-encompassing goal, the summing up of everything in the Messiah. Father, we are most privileged. And I pray that it would be understood and lived out in our hearts and our minds. Whatever our circumstance, whatever life confronts us with, to see your glory in the face of Christ and to see that glory reflected in our own faces as by the Spirit we are being transformed into the same likeness from glory unto glory. Hold us in these things. And Father, as we Now sit before the truth of your word as worshipers. I pray that you would instruct us, that you would encourage us, that you would build us up in this most holy faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Last week we looked at Psalm 50 as we considered this challenge to sonship that is idolatry. And we open that up a little bit, but thinking about that psalm and about the topic itself and and even kind of in view of thanksgiving and this theme of thankfulness as, as overarching and leading us into this holiday season, a time when we celebrate the birth of our Lord. I wanted to open this up a little bit more this week with an excursus, if you will, not tied to a particular psalm. But building out of what we saw, I hope, in Psalm 50, which is that Asaph shows us that thankfulness is God's answer to idolatry. 
That's kind of my basic thesis today, thankfulness as God's answer to idolatry. And we saw that again as we looked at Psalm 50 and the way in which the psalmist opened up Israel's idolatry, even in the context of its faithful observance, doing all the things that God required, and yet with hearts that were not right before him. But we saw in verse 14, the psalmist says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. And then he concludes the psalm by saying, The one who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving, speaking in Yahweh's behalf, the one who offers that sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, the Lord. And to the one who orders his way in that way, I will show the deliverance of God. God will be his protector and his deliverer, the one who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And that relationship, that thankfulness or thanksgiving being God's answer to idolatry, is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. And, you know, we'll, we'll see that in more depth today. But I would argue that it is one of the consistent themes that you see, not just in the Psalms, certainly in the Psalms, but throughout the Old and New Testament scriptures. But like everything, those concepts and their relationship have to be understood biblically. We can say thankfulness is the answer of God, the antidote to idolatry. Okay, fine and good. Well, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by that thankfulness? What do we mean even by idolatry? It's important to define and understand these things scripturally because every scriptural concept, term, idea, theme has a natural counterpart. Why is that the case? Because as with everything, we process and interpret and understand ideas, themes, concepts, things we observe through our own minds. And so when we think of thankfulness, we understand it through the grid of our own understanding. When we think of idolatry, we understand that through the grid of our own understanding. It may have some, you know, cultural connection. It may have some family sort. You know, we may understand these things based on things broader than ourselves, but they nonetheless are ultimately understood through the grid of our own minds. We perceive and understand things through the lens of our own minds. And a natural mind will have a natural understanding of these concepts. It's true of idolatry, it's true of thankfulness. And I would argue that in the way that we naturally understand this thing of thankfulness or gratitude, it's actually a manifestation of idolatry. It's not God's answer to idolatry. The way we understand thankfulness is actually a manifestation of idolatry. And I hope that we will see that as we move on. So what I want to do today is consider those two concepts, thankfulness, thanksgiving, and idolatry. What are they? How does the scripture understand them? And in that way, hopefully, then we can see the truth of my thesis that thankfulness is the way in which God tells us to deal with this issue of idolatry. 
If you recall my Thanksgiving message from last year, I, I established this point concerning thankfulness that in the scripture, in Israel's scriptures, certainly thankfulness, giving thanks, gratitude, that is not a distinct separate concept in Hebrew. There is no separate Hebrew word or Hebrew word group for this idea of thankfulness. Well, then why is is it translated thankfulness, thanksgiving, gratitude? Well, that concept of thankfulness is a connotation of the Hebrew idea of confession. Thankfulness is a connotation. In other words, one semantic strand of the concept of confession In the theological word book of the Old Testament, the writer says the best rendering of the term that is often translated thankfulness or thanksgiving is confession. This verb was predominantly employed to express one's public, in other words, an open, expressed proclamation or declaration of God's attributes and his works. It's not confession as in the Westminster Confession or confessing my sins to a priest. Confession is this idea of articulating the truth of who God is and his works. Public proclamation or declaration of God's attributes and his works. This concept is at the heart of the meaning of praise. Praise is confession or declaration of who God is and what he does. And so this term is most often translated to thank or give thanks in English versions, but that's really not a proper rendering. The Old Testament does not have our independent concept of thanks. The expression of thanks to God is included in praise. It's a way of praising, and praise is sits under this idea of confession. So confession is agreement, alignment in our minds, in our understanding, in our attitude, in our words, in our works, our actions. It's agreement with truth as God has made it known. Truth itself has to be defined biblically. Truth is not just facts, and it's not just whatever I happen to think it is. It's truth as it exists in God and as he has made it known. Agreement with that in our understanding, in our perception, in our attitudes, in our words, in our works. That's this idea of confession. That Hebrew concept of confession parallels the New Testament idea of confession that that word group or that, that term that has different cognates of it, homologeo, it means to say the same thing or to speak the same. To confess in the sense of the Greek term in the New Testament is to say the same or speak the same. The same as what? The same as God says. It's to say what God says. It's to articulate the truth as God himself has revealed it and articulated it. And as the the, uh, theological word book writer noted, that same Hebrew word translated confess is also translated as praise. 
Thanksgiving is actually a subset of praise, which itself is an aspect of confession. So the point is this, in the biblical way of thinking about these things, praise and confession and thanksgiving are inseparable and are mutually interpreting. You can't separate them. They all go together and they all define each other. They all serve to interpret each other. So to agree with God then is to know him and his works as they truly are. And to know him and his works as they truly are cannot help but provoke praise and gratitude. Just as one example, and I would encourage you as you read through the Psalms, remember the goal of this series is to help to weave and work the Psalms into our own religious or our own worship life. In our meditation, in our private worship, even in our corporate worship. As these were the songs of Israel's worship, we want to work them into our own experience. And we see this this working out of praise, thanksgiving, and confession throughout the Psalms. But just as one example in Psalm 33, the psalmist says, Sing for joy in Yahweh, joy that is in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming the upright. Give thanks to Yahweh with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right. It is true. All his work is done in faithfulness, with integrity. He does what he says. His word, his works are the same as who he is. He loves what is right and what is just. The earth is full of the faithfulness of the Lord. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap and lays up the deeps and storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, worship him in truth. Set their minds and their hearts on him reverently. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. His counsel stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. I mean, that's just one example, and that's just a part of that psalm. Confessing the truth and expressing that in praise and in gratitude. Thanksgiving. So thankfulness is, first of all, a subset of this concept of praise. It is also, both of those sit under this idea of confession as speaking the truth, as God knows it to be, as he has revealed it, as he has manifested it, even in his works, the works that testify of him. So all of that then shows that thankfulness is an essential component of worship. There is no worship of God privately, corporately, There is no worship of God where thankfulness in this sense is absent. 
We can be thankful for our spouse. We can be thankful that we got over our illness. We can be thankful for our job. We can be thankful for lots of things. But that's not the essential thankfulness that is fundamental to worship. So there is no worship apart from thankfulness. And you can see this even in Israel's life. Israel's worship was centered in a a sacrificial system that God had given to them. They worshiped God in connection with sacrifices and offerings that he had prescribed. And that's why you see, even in the psalm that we looked at last week and throughout the, the Old Testament scriptures, this idea of a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Because Israel's worship was, in their own minds and in their own experience, was set in the context of sacrifice and offering. And so when thanksgiving or thankfulness was treated as a part of their worship, it was often spoken of in that way. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. And the Lord did mandate those physical offerings. We saw that even in Psalm 50. He didn't say, forget about it, you don't need to bring those. But he found fault with them and he said, I don't want them, I don't approve of them, because of the, the, the attitude and the way of thinking that lay behind those sacrifices. I can't abide iniquity in the solemn assembly. Those offerings were mandated, but what God was really getting at in them was this underlying disposition of submission and gratitude and dependence, as we talked about last week. The relationship that God had with Israel was a father to a child. It was a unilateral relationship. Yahweh as father gave his people as children received. There's nothing they could give him. There's nothing he wanted from them. He said, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. What are you going to give me? You don't have anything to give me. What I want from you is an attitude and an orientation that reflects the fact of that unilateralness, that you live in in a disposition of open hands, trusting me, receiving from me, being satisfied in me. What I want from you is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Humility, dependence, gratitude. And that follows its way all through the whole scriptures. What made Israel's sacrifices honorable and acceptable to God was when they expressed the unilateralness of the relationship. When they presented these offerings to him, they were simply giving to him what was already his, what he had provided to them. The way that he had made for them to sustain and nourish the relationship with him. They weren't feeding him. They weren't meeting his needs what they were giving to him was testimony that he was Israel's physician and provider. That's how thankfulness is oriented. It's oriented biblically towards the person of God, the work of God, what it is that he's done, how we stand in relation to him. It's not so much gratitude for individual things, although I'm not saying we shouldn't be thankful for the individual things. That's thankfulness. 
The second piece of this then is idolatry. And just like everything, there's a natural way that people tend to think of idolatry. And often idolatry is thought of in terms of a primitive religious practice in which people invent gods or deities, you know, the god of the fire, the god of the volcano, the god of this, the god of that. And they either they make little figures or, you know, some sort of physical manifestation of it or they don't. But they essentially fabricate uh, or imagine these powers and these entities, the, these divine forces out there, and then they worship them. And so idolatry is often associated with unenlightened, pre-scientific cultures. You know, this, yeah, people used to be that way before they understood how lightning works and before they understood, you know, why, uh, the, what the sun is and, and how it actually operates. It's not running across the sky. And, you know, that was all pre-scientific stuff. And because it's religious, we're a secular people. I'm a secular person. Therefore, idolatry has nothing to do with me because I'm not making little statues. I'm not setting up votive altars and candles and doing all of that. I don't even believe in such a thing as God. I don't believe that there are spiritual powers out there. I'm not an idolater. That's for religious people. That's for unenlightened people. But the scripture insists, and it demonstrates repeatedly, that idolatry is a universal human phenomenon. Idolatry is a universal human phenomenon. It's independent of when you live in history, what your culture is, how educated you are, how much you understand, what your religious sensibilities are. All human beings from the scripture's vantage point are idolaters. And they are inherently so and consummately so. John Calvin said the human mind is a perpetual idol factory. And that's what he was getting at. He didn't say primitive cultures in Borneo. He said the human mind. The human mind is a perpetual idol factory. Scripturally, idolatry transcends this kind of caricature of ritual worship of imagined gods. It speaks to the essential condition of human existence. The essential condition of human existence and the fact that each person is effectively his own God. Why? Because what the fall has done is it's resulted in the fracturing of all things across the whole creation. It resulted, the, the essence of the fall was, that, was the temptation for human beings to believe that they can know and fully realize their human identity, their human, you know, they, they can consummately become human independent of God. Not become atheists, not deny that God exists, but simply in and of themselves they can attain to the fullness of their own human existence. They can be self-actualized, if you want to use that contemporary expression. But because man is the image and likeness of God, 
to the extent that he loses that essential connection with God, he loses himself. He loses the truth of himself. That's the sense in which the scripture says, in the day you eat of it, you will die. Not your heart will stop beating, but you will cease to be who you are. You will die to the truth of yourself. You will be reduced to a facsimile of what you really are. And so what the scripture wants us to see is that the human condition consists of people who are confined, imprisoned within a broken, alienated mind. They are locked within themselves, unable to know and experience the truth of themselves because they are cut off from the life of the one who is the truth of who they are. And so they exist in this woeful, tragic state of being confined within a broken self, and yet as sentient beings, confined to have to view all of life, all of existence, all of reality, including themselves through the lens of themselves. So every human being does this thing called life through the grid of their own mind. There is nothing that you know, think, experience, feel, sense, believe that doesn't come through the grid of your mind. Your five senses, all that's happening is electrochemical stimuli is coming to your brain and your brain is deciding what that is and what it means. whether you're hearing or your sight or whatever, everything outside of us comes to us through our senses. And that data, that sensory stimuli is processed through our minds. And everything I think about myself and everything I believe and everything that takes place inside of me also is processed through the grid of my own mind. There is no escaping the fact that we live in our own minds. The problem is when our minds are alienated, when our minds are broken, then we have no access to the truth in the ultimate sense. And I'm not talking about facts or physics. You know, I can figure out that E equals MC squared. I'm not talking about that. But to get at existential truth as God knows it is an impossibility for us in that condition. And in that circumstance... Living in our own minds, but minds that are cut off from the life of God, we have no option but to be our own God. Everything I think and believe is true, or I wouldn't believe it. We don't say, I believe what I know to be false, right? Everything, I am the measure of all things. That's the way we all live. That's the only way we can live. We have no choice but to be our own God. And so in the end, the scripture acknowledges only two gods. There's the God who actually is, and then there's me. And all these things that we call gods, that the Bible calls gods, you know, whether it's Baal or Ashtoreth or, you know, um, things that, that, are, that are beyond simply a deity that we imagine. All the things that are idols are simply the extrapolation of our own mind. And the fact that it's, they're, they're, they're instruments of our own godhood, 
Remember, we read Isaiah 44 last week, and God is mocking the people of Israel because he says, you take a piece of wood, and part of it, you burn it in the fire. You make a fire with it to warm you, to serve you as a warming instrument, and to serve you as an instrument for cooking your food. And the other part you fashion into a god, an image, and you fall down before it and you say, you are my god, deliver me. Whether it's cooking the food, warming the body, or fashioning the image and hanging a gold chain on it or whatever, it's all the same thing. That thing is imagined and fashioned to serve my perceived good. All gods other than the true God are constructs of a person's effective self-deification and self-worship. Every person lives as his own God. You could say, no, that's not true. I do what my wife tells me. Well, why do you do what your wife tells you? Because it goes well with you. I do what my boss tells me. Why? Because you want to keep your job because I need the money, because I have to feed myself, right? Everything ultimately comes back to me seeking my own self-interest. It's true of material or immaterial idols. It's true of demonic powers. You know, Paul says an idol is nothing, these things are all made up, and yet when people sacrifice to idols, they are in a sense sacrificing ultimately to demons. Even in the case of spiritual powers out there that actually exist, why do people embrace them? Because they see those powers as serving their own ends. What is magic all about? And I'm not talking about sleight of hand. I'm talking about magic as religious practice, occultism, witchcraft, paganism, manipulating rituals and things within our control in order to draw the attention and the benevolence and the effectual power of the powers. You know, voodoo, you you draw on these powers in order to use them against your enemies or to use them for your own blessing or benefit. When you look at at Satanism, whether, you know, in the the way that it was understood and taught by Aleister Crowley or the, the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey, those of us that are old enough to remember all that from the 70s and the 80s, But what is the marrow of that? What was the one law? Do what you will. Do what you will. Drawing on these powers and even the personification of these powers as the instrument of my own agenda, my own well-being. So idolatry is the very marrow of natural human existence. It's not just something that characterizes, you know, the primitive pagan in Indonesia off in the jungle someplace. All people are idolaters because their lives are entirely centered in themselves. They form 
idols in their own mind, and they do the same thing with the true God. We naturally fashion God in our own image and likeness. And one way that you can see it very easily is when you hear people say, I think God is, or the God I serve, fill in the blank. God would not. God would. Right? We become the judges of what kind of God can exist, what he can be like, what he can do, what's right, what's wrong, what would make him worth serving, what would make him not worth serving, what would make him real, what would make him a figment of people's imaginations. The same principle applies to even the way that we conceive the God who is with our natural minds. People's relationship with the God of the Bible as they, you know, just come and, and find this being there that they put this label G-O-D on, it's just as idolatrous as any relationship they might have with a false deity. So just a couple of summary observations and then I'll, I'll conclude this and bring these ideas together. This is the sense in which the scriptures adamant that human beings cannot in themselves arrive at a true knowledge of God. Doesn't mean they can't learn facts. Doesn't mean they can't memorize the texts of the scripture. They cannot come to a true knowledge of God in themselves. Paul, who was so, the Apostle Paul, who was so meticulous, so observant, so devout, he knew the scriptures inside and out, and he believed with all of his heart that he was serving the the God of Israel. And yet he came to recognize that in all of that faithfulness, in all of that obedience, in all of that devoutness, he was a blasphemer. He was a grievous offender. He was absolutely committed to the God of the Bible, but he hadn't come to know him in truth because ultimately he did not know him in the Messiah. Even as God was revealing himself through Israel's history, it was ultimately disclosing himself in a way that would come to find its ultimate embodied realization in Jesus himself. He's the embodied fullness of God, and he's the embodiment of all truth. But just as we can't naturally come to know this God who's revealed in the Bible, our observation and our scrutiny of the person of Jesus can't in themselves get us to a living knowledge. Because all of our consideration is through distorted, alienated minds. There has to be an overcoming of the alienation, the distortion, the corruption in our own minds. And this is where the spirit comes in. The scripture doesn't say study and learn Greek and learn Hebrew and you'll know the God of the Bible. Be meticulous. Keep the commandments and you'll know the God of the Bible. See, Israel thought that they could substitute conformity to God's Torah for knowing the God behind the Torah. And they didn't. They didn't know him. 
The Spirit is the one who imparts the knowledge of God that is fully known, fully realized, fully embodied in Christ himself. But the Spirit imparts that knowledge by means of transformation, not information. Transformation, not information. Remember in the upper room how Jesus was trying to explain to his disciples the meaning of his coming death. They couldn't figure out what this was all about. How can the Messiah die? That doesn't make sense. The Messiah is supposed to fight the definitive battle and establish his kingdom and his kingship through this triumph. How can he die? Well, precisely in that way. But as he explained to them, even as they were saying, we thought you were the Messiah. We thought you came to establish the kingdom. We thought you came to sit on the throne of David. Now you're going to die and go away? He said, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The world will no longer behold me, but you will behold me. And it's kind of a play on words there. The world won't see me physically anymore. You won't see me physically, but you will behold me in truth. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father. The Father is in me. I am in you. You are in me. And we will come and we will make our place with you. You will know me in that day. The Spirit will come and he will take what belongs to me and he will convey it to you. Not like handing you something, but by forming my life and my likeness in you, transforming you into my likeness. This is the way in which we have to think about total depravity and the work of God in saving people. It's not that people can't understand facts. It's not that people hate God. It's that their conceptions have to be recreated. Their minds have to be renewed. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds, and that's the work of the Spirit. So to bring this all together then in preparation for the table, idolatry as the scripture understands it is nothing more than natural human existence, natural human spirituality. It's the way human beings express their inherent spiritual nature as divine image bearers in the context of their estrangement. When the scripture says all men are liars, that's what it's getting at. People could say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not conscious of ever having told a lie. You know, I'm like George Washington. I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down the cherry tree, right? That's not the point that the scripture is making. It doesn't say all people tell factual untruths. All people are themselves liars in the sense that they are embodied and embodied lie. They are human beings that are living in a way that lies against the truth of who they are. And that's why even at the end of the scripture in the Revelation, it has those outside being characterized by the lie, right? Outside are all liars. All those who do not become authentically, truly human in the Messiah, who are defined by a lie, are outside, That's what idolatry is. It's life according to a lie. It's pseudo-humanness. So whether we believe in any deity, whether we call our deity, 
Yahweh, whether we call him Allah, whether we call him the cosmos, whether we call him nature, whether we call him nothing and say there are no gods. It, it's all the same thing. We're worshiping naturally as, as we, again, in our natural selves, we're worshiping self-fabricated, self-serving gods. And therefore, we're worshiping ourselves. Idolatry defines man as a liar. And for that reason, all people are inherently, just as all people are idolaters, all people are inherently unthankful. Say, well, wait a minute. I think, you know, even when I was a little kid, I'd get down by my bed and say, thank you, God, for my puppy. And thank you, God, for mommy. And thank you for daddy. And thank you for this. And thank you for our food. And thank you for my house. I'm not unthankful. Well, in the biblical sense, we are. Because if thankfulness is agreement with the God who is, with him his person and his work, those who don't know him in truth cannot confess him in truth. They cannot agree with him. They cannot be thankful in the biblical sense, right? All people are idolaters, and in that sense, all people are unthankful. Thankfulness is impossible for humans in their natural condition. Paul says in Romans 1, they had a knowledge of God that is in, again, he's known through the things that he has been made, but they were not thankful. They didn't know him in truth. But because thankfulness is confession of the truth, it is the antidote to idolatry. That's where I began this whole thing. Thankfulness as God's answer to idolatry. If thankfulness is agreement in the inner man, first of all, with God in our perspective, in our understanding, in our valuation, that agreement in the inner man expresses itself in attitude, orientation, words, and deeds. And so thankfulness is the first fruit of knowing God in truth. What's the, what's the great evidence of knowing God in truth? Thankfulness in that sense. And I'm not depreciating or saying we should never be grateful for the good gifts that God gives us. What we eat, what we drink, what we wear, our spouses, our kids, whatever it happens to be. But that's not the fundamental issue of thankfulness as worship. Thankfulness that acknowledges the God who is and what he has, who he is and what he's accomplished in Christ himself. That's the first fruit of that knowledge. And that thankfulness is the ongoing continual fruit of it. And it's the safeguard against idolatry. Idolatry as this constant encroachment of a natural mind, right? It's always pressing against us. Always pressing against us. Just a couple of places to show this. If you look in Ephesians and Colossians very much parallel each other in this regard. But I'm going to read just a couple things from Colossians. Paul writes and says, as you have received, as you've embraced the Messiah, Jesus, as Lord, 
Walk in him. Walk in him. Order your life around that living knowledge, that reception, that embrace of him. Well, what does that mean? Well, you were, you're rooted in him. Now you need to be built up in him. You need to continue to be established in the faith that you've been instructed in. And ultimately, overflowing with gratitude. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. And then he goes on to say, As those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, as the Lord forgave you, so should you. And above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. And the way that he expresses this, he's not saying, do this thing called thanking God. He says, let this be who you are. It's a disposition of life, not just an activity. A way of being. Thankfulness as a way of being. That's what Paul is saying. Well, what does this look like in practice? How, you know, how do we, if, if thankfulness is the safeguard against idolatry, against false notions, you know, uh, false emotions, false ways that, that lead us astray in our hearts, in our lives. How do we become thankful people? Not give thanks for certain things, but be defined by thankfulness. Well, what we see from the Psalms is that it involves rehearsing and nurturing the truth in our own understanding and in our own convictions. If we want to talk about why should we be reading the Bible as Christians, that's why. We need to be rehearsing and nurturing in ourselves the truth as it is in God and as he has brought it to pass in Christ. We need to be rehearsing, rehearsing, nurturing our understanding, our convictions. And that discipline will not get, allow us to give ground to these kinds of emotions and ideas and notions that will lead us astray. That will cause us to be you know, despairing or, or discouraged or despondent or, or unbelieving or questioning or whatever it happens to be. The things that move us away from a solidarity in the Lord. That discipline of rehearsing and nurturing will keep us back from that. If you look, and I'm not going to read all of these, but I want you, I, I ask you to do that this week. This is just one example, but if you look at Psalms 105 through 108, they're all very much centered in thankfulness, but in Psalm 105, the thankfulness erupts out of rehearsing what God has done in calling and establishing this people Israel. Psalm 105 talks about God's calling to Abraham and how they went off to Egypt and how in a famine he preserved them and how he brought them out and how he gave them the land of Canaan. 
It begins, oh, give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, speak of all of his wonders. Well, then he goes on to talk about those wonders. It's, it's what God has done in establishing, calling to himself uh, an Abrahamic people, a people in Abraham. And then in Psalm 106, it continues the same theme of thankfulness. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his covenant faithfulness is everlasting. And then the psalmist goes on to talk about in the face of of God's calling and establishing of Abraham and preserving the people and taking them to Egypt and bringing them out and giving them the land, they sinned against him and they were unfaithful and they were rebellious. But he remained faithful. Give thanks to the Lord for he is faithful when his people are not. And then in 107, it branches out even farther. It has this repeated refrain. Let them give thanks to Yahweh for his covenant faithfulness, his faithfulness to his purposes established in covenant, and for his wonders to the sons of men. It begins, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. It focuses on, again, this redemption of Israel. He's going to establish them. He's going to preserve them. But ultimately, in a way that will bear testimony and fruit among the sons of men. Do you see the progress of this? But it's thankfulness that is erupting in rehearsing this God, who he is, what he's done. And then in 108, the psalmist says, David, my heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will give praises, even with my very inner being. Awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. In other words, this this is the way I'll begin my day. I will awaken the dawn with my praises, with my songs. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your faithfulness is great above the heavens. Your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Your glory is above all the earth. That, the, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand. Answer me. Thankfulness. To be, to be a thankful people, we have to be a people who are constantly ruminating on, filling ourselves with rehearsing, nurturing, you know, raising up inside of ourselves a, a, a reinforcement and a growing in the knowledge of who this God is, what he's accomplished. And I know I say this a lot, but to me it's very sad that for so many Christians, it all just comes down to one thing. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Well, who is this God? Well, he saved me. Well, who is this Jesus? Well, he saved me. I'm going to heaven. We can't be thankful people in that kind of superficial, trivial, undefined sort of faith. Thankfulness requires and it flows out of a well-informed and a well-disciplined mind. A mind that is devoted to learning, growing, and abiding in the truth as it exists in God, as he has revealed it ultimately in Christ himself, and as it is mediated to us in the scriptures by the Spirit. We should be a people who are given to the scriptures, but in this sort of a way. 
This is our obligation of sonship, but it's also God's endowment to us. Thankfulness is our obligation, but it's also God's endowment to us. And as we come to the table, I want to just leave us with what Paul gives us as how thankfulness becomes our provision, God's goodness, his endowment, his gift to us, his gift of love, his gift of nurture, his gift of protection. In Philippians 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it to you, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Constancy, perseverance. Not blown and tossed about by all the circumstances of life. Let your forbearance be known to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so finally, my brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and even observed in me, practice these things, be disciplined in these things, strive in these things, and the God of peace will be with you. How do I find peace in my life? How do I deal with, how do I, you know, why am I so anxious? Why am I so, how, what's the answer? Well, there's the answer. It's that simple. It's hard, but it's simple. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of God in Christ. Be being transformed by the renewing of your minds. Be a thankful people. In all things, at all times, give thanks. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And it's not so much thankfulness about things as it is an orientation of life. Gratitude. Gratitude, more than anything, recognizes the unilateralness of our relationship with our Father. He doesn't want anything from us but to be devoted to him and to trust him and walk with him and get from his hand what is needful and what is good. Well, let me pray and then we'll prepare to come to the table. Father, even as we come to the ordinance of the table, it's one more aspect of your good gift of reminder, of rehearsal, of nurture. In the table, we're again brought back to the truth that you are the God who provides. You wanted Israel to see that all of the ordinances of offering and sacrifice and worship were your gift to them that the relationship would be preserved and sustained and nurtured and perfected because of your power, your goodness, your provision. And we see that as we come to the table. We don't have Jesus in our life. He is life. And it's because we share in him 
because of your faithfulness in and through him, because of his faithfulness, and because of the power and the work, the faithful work of the Spirit, we are in the Messiah. He is our life. And he is the surety of the perfection to come, not just in our own experience, but in the whole creation. And when we come to the table, we're reminded that you have made provision for us, and that provision is by being taken up in your life in the Messiah by the Spirit. If we are your people, we eat the flesh and we drink the blood of the Messiah. Not literally, but his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His enthronement, his triumph, his authority over all things is the destiny you've appointed for us. Priests and kings to our God. Father, help us to come with grateful hearts. Help us to come not fixated on ourselves and how well we're doing or whether there's any unconfessed sin in our life or whatever, but that we would come as those who have open hands, knowing that your grace is sufficient and that what you would have us to do is to be a dependent, humble, receptive, thankful people. Help us to receive from your hand in that way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.